Okay. All right. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. I just want to ask a question. I want to say, who in here, when you think about going to Thanksgiving, you know, it, it, you know, I'm not saying there's not other thoughts too, but I'm saying at least some of your thoughts are warm. At least some of your thoughts are wonderful. At least some of your thoughts are, wow, I get to see so-and-so, and I get to be with this, and I, I get to do this, and this is really going to be fun, and this is awesome. How many of you would say, at, at least to some degree, I have warm feelings about Thanksgiving in the whole nine yards, right? I hope that's everybody in here. I know it's probably not. That's very unfortunate. And that brings us to our second question, which is, how many people would say, you know, all right, yes, there is some warm things too, but, <laughs> you know, Julie and I are going back to Missouri, and we're going to be having the first Thanksgiving we've had with her family in many years, and it's going to be absolutely wonderful. I'm really excited to be there. I can't wait to see who's going to be there. Our brothers I love uh, and, and other cousins and so on. We're very close. And I just can't wait to celebrate this incredible time with them. And just being careful when I say this, but there are a few situations there too which could go nuclear. Okay? And when I say nuclear, I'm talking about a full-on meltdown of the entire time. Okay? I'm not talking about, I'm talking not just about an unpleasant moment. I'm talking about it could get... It could go very, very, very badly, okay? Now, what are we doing about that? Well, we're praying and everything else, and blah, 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 and, you know, we're trusting God, and, you know, it's going to be warm and wonderful and, you know, right, okay? But how many of you would say, yes, no matter how many positive feelings I have, there is at least some of this other thing, too, that, you know, is troublesome, which is the euphemism for, you know, bad, Okay? <laughs> How many of you have at least a little bit of that? Just look around. Be honest. Come on. I like this body being transparent. Okay? I'm about to be so transparent you're going to hate it. Okay? So I want you to just get it. that This is very common to us. Let me, let me say it this way. We're going to be talking about how to handle those relationships today from Revelation. We're going to be talking about that. But I do want you to understand something. It's not just the Thanksgiving relationships. How many of you you in here could say, there's at least one relationship in my life which is in some sideways condition, which is, again, the euphemism for it ain't what it's supposed to be. How many people would say there's at least one relationship in your life? It may be a spouse. It may be a sibling. It may be a child. It may be a parent. It may be a friend. It may be a coworker. Whatever it is. But really, is there anybody in here? And don't raise your hand because it will make us all feel bad. But is there anybody in here that doesn't have at least something somewhere in some relationship that's just broken, darn it, and it's been broken for quite a while? And, you know, you just kind of come to a bit of a place where you just sort of marginalized or tried to fence it in or done whatever, and and we're going to actually talk about how to get past to a new place. Now, I think this is really important since the last thing that Jesus told us was be one right? Be one. So this is a really important thing that we're going to be doing. It's a really cool way that we're going to get to it. Who's our prayer? Kevin? Oh, awesome. Kevin Prowlis. This is a, no, I wouldn't say call you new anymore because you're around so much, but he's doing worship now. He's doing worship team. This is, an ex- this is exactly the example of what Lake Sam is supposed to look like. Somebody who comes in, they have giftings, the church discerns, help them figure it out. They, they start getting involved, and they're very profitable. I don't know how soon it'll be before you're leading worship here, but not long, I'm sure. And bottom line, it's just awesome the things he's bringing on a whole lot of levels. So Kevin, go ahead and pray for us in the, yes, another church too. God, we come before you 
and we all come from a slightly different place, some of it positive, some of it negative. And Lord, I just ask right now that, that we wouldn't leave that in our car, or we wouldn't leave that outside, but we would take all of that into this place. Lord, we give you our hopes and our dreams and our desires and our fears and our anxieties, our functions and our dysfunctions, our, our happy and our sad and our angry and, and our, all of that, God. And we bring this into your presence and we ask you to do something Thank with you, all of that. God. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would, would you speak to each person here exactly what they need, God, Thank that we would all walk out of here saying, wow, God spoke to me today. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you in advance because we know you're going to speak. We trust you to do that, God. I also want to lift up uh, New Hope Foursquare Church in Vancouver, Washington. God, I just pray that you would continue to help them be a light uh, to their city or that you would continue to speak through them and that they would just be a blessing to everyone who encounters them. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's where Graham Myrie is, and you may, some of you may remember when he went out from here to go there. So that was, that's really cool. Thank you. That's actually where Kevin served for a period of time. All right. We are in Revelation, and we are doing our series, which is, let me just see if it's, oh, there you go, Demystifying the Book of Revelation. Okay. And what we are doing today is, uh, remember last week when I was working on chapter 12, and I, we were kind of rushing through the second half, or really the end of that chapter, and I was saying, I don't know if I'm going to go back or not. I, I felt conflicted. I kind of wanted to move on, but I felt like there was something in that that I didn't feel like I was supposed to be just jumping over. And so I just kind of said, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Well, I took it to prayer, of course, and, and I just really prayed through it. And I felt like God opened up this way of communicating a principle that we talked about last week, but we're going to take it to a whole new level. The principle we talked about last week is, is that the language in chapter 12 is symbolic. We're clued into the fact that it's symbolic because at the beginning of chapter 12, it says this. I saw a sign in heaven. And then it describes this vision that he has. Now, we, we noted that the sign is not the thing. God is speaking symbolically about truths. Now, what we noted was chapters 1 through 11, God has been talking to us in a very literal fashion. Okay? He's been outlining, laying out the flow of events in humankind, right? We're starting with the churches, when we looked at the churches, and then what will be happening and all this kind of stuff. And 1 through 11 is this timeline, literal laying out of what is going to happen. In chapter 12, God then pushes the pause button on that timeline, which will come back, but he pushes the pause button, and he's now going to tell us why all this is happening. And we saw it last week, and the why is, is that there's a, there is a real devil and we are being withstood, and he has an agenda, and it's working out. And God, who gave people free will, is working this thing out in a particular way so that all the heavenly hosts and all the beings on earth can bear witness to the amazing ways in which God reconciles, brings people to faith, makes the decision and the choice between, and all of these things. So the why is what we're looking at in chapter 12. Now, the other thing that we noted is, though, is that when you go to symbolic language, it's a lot like poetry. The thing about poetry is, is poetry is just a few words that communicate a whole lot, right? Communicate on different levels. Now, do notice something. Most poetry, there's some that would be unmoored, but very little. Most poetry, if it's a poem about love, its referent is love. It may be talking about dew in the hills, and it may be talking about deers and fawns or whatever, but the bottom line is, 
it's referencing something that's real. So symbolic language is not just fantastical with no connection to reality. It's referring to something that's real. But it's doing so in a way that is capturing more than just the events. It's capturing and communicating the spirit of the events. Now today we're going to find out something even more about it. That when God communicates, he's able to talk about events, plural. He's able to talk about huge swaths of time in a way that is symbolic, poetic, and is true to the truth of each one of the times. And there's three of them we're going to look at. We could look at more, but I just wanted you to get a sense of this incredible thing that God does. When he communicates, the way that he's able to communicate an absolute truth. Now watch this. You can get a horoscope, and it'll be so vague that it'll fit any situation, right? Short, sweet, vague, right? And then, it'll, oh, yeah, see, that was the fulfillment of that. This is exactly the opposite of what God's doing. God is going to lay out, as we're going to see, a very specific number of markers that need to happen and that are referencing something real and that reference something that happened here and that then happens here and that then happens here. And it is absolutely true to all of them. And this calls us back to, I don't know if you remember, but when we first started Revelation, I talked to you about this idea about what, what prophecy does, which is, here's this lineup of chairs, and if I get it right, see, I look at these chairs right now, and as I'm looking, if I could get just a little taller, as I'm looking at those chairs, to me it looks like one, two, three, four chairs. It looks like one thing, four chairs. See? But what happens in prophecy is, is that the things that were said are absolutely true as these things, the near-term fulfillment, happens. The thing that was said is clearly about this. But when I get to the event, I see there's excess meaning. I see there's yet more. So this is true. I can say this is the fulfillment. There it is. But I can see, but there is more. And so I go to here. And then I can go to here. See? And each one of these is absolutely true to the words. And God has this way of communicating, of orchestrating life, of orchestrating events, that the flow of what he's doing happens, happens, happens. Now that's what we already looked at, but we're going to see today again, in that same vein, we're going to see how God is able to communicate on every level every dimension, everything, perfectly, true to the truth, that it fits this, 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 this. It's just an unbelievable thing. So the reason why this is important in our study for Revelation, we'll get the reason why it's important for Thanksgiving later. The reason why this is important for our study of Revelation is this. A lot of commentators follow, the, well, they they get messed up in the first 11 chapters and the literalness of their fulfillment because when they get to chapter 12, what they do is instead of understanding the fullness of what God's saying, the symbolic language and how it's capturing, they'll pick one of those. And they'll say, no, what this all meant was this. See, you're wrong here, you're wrong here. And I love commentaries. I've said that before, right? But bottom line, thank you for telling me that, Kevin, all right? But the bottom line is he's also on our preach calls. He's preached here too. 
But, but the point is, is, is that when we do this, they'll say, this is the one that's right, this is why this one isn't right, this is why this one isn't right, and they'll do this. And then when they make this one, the only way that you can read chapter 12, they have to go back and take what is pretty obvious. You know, chapter 1 through 11, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, really. Not, it's not, it's not undeep and it's not simple, but it isn't as complex as it first seems. And I've had two people in the last couple of days come up and bless me in ways that I don't know that I could ever communicate back, and I don't, I think the Lord needed me to hear it, because we're getting into deep stuff, and I wonder, is everybody getting it, you know, are you understanding, am I, is it really communicating, or is it just confusing, or whatever, and two people have come up, and, and just in very touching ways to me, have stopped me and said, the stuff you're talking about, you're making it so clear, and I hope that's true for everybody, maybe everybody else is confused, and they haven't said anything, but, but the point is, is I just want to do something here. I want us to get a hold of, this is not a hard-to-understand book. It does take sweat equity. You do have to work through it. You can't just casually look at it and get it. But if you will give it the time, it unfolds like a flower, and its depths keep unfolding. And it just is, it's a beautiful book. It's incredible what's in here. So we're going to see something about this incredible book, which should communicate something about an incredible God. And the way that we're going to do it is, is we're going to look again through the chapter, and I'm going to go kind of quick on the first part, and if you want to get more on it, you can, but you've got to go back to the next, last week's sermon, okay? So here we go. This is the first part of it. I witnessed in heaven a sign. Now, this is NLT, and they, they've translated it, and, and I, I probably shouldn't use it, but I like the way it reads other than the fact that they miss that it's a sign and whatever. So, I witnessed in heaven a sign of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun and the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. We looked at that last time. She was pregnant. She cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Look at that. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant sign vision thing. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky. He threw them down the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour a baby as soon as it was born. Now, just briefly, so that we're catching the flow, I'm only going to catch the stuff that's important because we talked a lot more about it, but briefly what you want to remember, there's a woman who's giving birth, and what's she giving birth to? Two things at once. See, symbolic language. It fits both. One of them is clearly Christ, the Son, to be devoured. Herod tries to kill all the babies, etc. Okay? So a very literal rendering. But it's also this Romans idea of the whole of creation having been given to mankind who then gave it to Satan. And so it's now under corruption, decay, perversion, falling apart. It is in birth pangs now. And the whole of creation is trying to birth the new heaven and earth because we corrupted the garden one. And so it's trying to bring about this. And both of these are in view here. But I want to do something right here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create what we're going to call for the rest of the day. We're going to call it an, an element or a marker. And you remember how I said it's not a horoscope where it's just sort of vague so you can make anything fit, that there are markers that are in here? Now, we could do many more markers than I'm going to do, but I'm going to do the ones that are really important for us to follow a flow in the timelines I'm going to look at. So... Having said that, the marker that we're doing first is a woman. Okay, there's a woman, and we've got to understand who is that woman. And we're going to see three different ways of understanding who that woman actually is. Okay? All right. 
Now the next one. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod, clearly Jesus. Her child was snatched away from the dragon and caught up to God in his throne. The dragon did in fact kill Jesus, thinking that that would be the devouring, but he rose again and ascended to God. So, oops, okay? And the woman fled in the wilderness where God prepared a place for her to care for for 1,260 days. We've noted that in chapters 1 through 11, when it says 1,260, it means 1,260 days. We've noted here that when it goes into symbolic language, there are fulfillments that are, have to do with 1,260 actual days, but it is also a deeper truth, and the truth is 1,260 is the three and a half, which is half of the seven weeks of Daniel, and what's being communicated is there is a time of protection that God gives, and then there's a time when he doesn't, and that's to comfort us so that when it happens, we don't think that God has abandoned us. We don't think that we're SOL. Sorry, okay? But you catch a drift, see? So that we get it. So what happens is, this is the way that that's going to play, and you're going to see that again. Then we go to a longer section here that I'm going to go through. But there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. The dragon lost the battle. He and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heaven, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, note this really importantly, bracket that. Remember what it is that Satan does. He deceives and he accuses. Okay? He's an accuser as opposed to God who does what? We're going to see in a moment. It has come to, at last, the kingdom of God. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before our God, day and night, repetition and reinforcing the point. They have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. They did not love, we did not love our lives so much that we were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come upon the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing he has a little time. So out of that whole section, now again, there's several markers I could have pulled, but for all the three that we're doing today, they would all be the same thing. So I'm only pulling the ones that will differentiate. So the marker that's going to differentiate is Satan cast down. You'll, this will make more sense in a second. Just hang in there with me. Okay? When the dragon realized he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Our marker is he pursues the woman. The next one but when she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for time, times, and half a time. Three and a half again, that 1260, 1278, 1290, all those numbers we've been talking about, but that three and a half, right? So the next one is the woman flies to the wilderness. Okay? Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. The earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. Seems a little weird. Seems a little, you know, how, how to understand that? We're going to see how to easily understand that. Satan tries to flood, but the earth helps. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. Who are the children? All who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. So here's our markers. Satan goes after Christ's followers, and here's all of our markers. The woman, Satan casts down, pursues the woman. The woman flies to the wilderness. Satan tries to flood, but the earth helps. Satan goes after Christ's followers. 
What I'm saying is, is in each one of these three ways we're now going to look at this, this has got to be, these elements have to be there. They have to be there in an obvious way. Which is why commentators will say, well, it's obvious, it's this. But then another one will go, but no, it's obvious, it's this. And it's obvious, it's that, okay? Now watch what we're going to do, okay? So the first one, right here. This is the first way to understand who the woman is. It's the nation of Israel in John's day. John is writing in 95 AD. He's writing about something mostly that has already happened. There's still a little bit to come. But the bottom line is he's writing to comfort the Jewish people. I keep saying Revelation is a book of comfort food. That's not how most people read it, but that's what it is. And John is telling things to tell people about what's going on and how it's going on. So the first way we can understand it is it's clearly, and I put clearly in there to be facetious. It's like the commentator that's saying, don't you see, it's obviously this. And they say it's clearly this because, remember, that woman had 12 crowns. And that's a very Jewish way of talking. That has to do with the 12 tribes. Okay? So clearly this is talking about the nation of Israel. Who, by the way, fits nicely. What happened was, is see, now it's not just the nation of Israel not believing in Christ. Remember, John's a Jew. And so he's talking about the Jewish nation who has a Christ come to them. And you remember when the disciples went out. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Again, I could go so much deeper on all of these, but I'm going to try and keep it simple so that we can really follow the flow. But the bottom line is Jesus sends out 70 people two by two. And when they come back, having taken the kingdom out, delivered people from the devil, delivered them from sicknesses and bondages and healing, given them healing. And what he's done is he's gone out and done this. And when they come back, Jesus says this to them. He told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Remember, Satan cast down. So there it is. See, that's when Satan came down. Jesus said it. I mean, there it is. How much more clearer can you make it? Okay? All right? So the next thing is pursuing the woman. This is the Roman army. I mean, remember, Jesus dies in 30. The Roman army comes in 70. And in 70, about 72 to 74, there's no more Israel. There's no more temple. There's no more anything. So there is a flood. And, and we're going to see it in a second. But referring to an army as a flood is a normal way biblical talks about armies. But bottom line is clearly the Roman army comes down and pursues the woman. Who's the woman? The nation of Israel. He's pursuing and doing well at it, wiping her out. Okay? But the woman flies to the wilderness. This is what we call the diaspora. There's about a million and point, 1.2, 1.3 million Jews in Jerusalem when the Romans surround it, besiege it. There's only 90,000 that live to the end of it. And it's not because the Romans killed them. They killed themselves inside. Okay? Horrific story. But bottom line is, the rest of the nation, there's more than 1.2 million Jews in the nation of Israel at that point in time. The rest of the nation, when they see all this stuff happening, in fact, just like Jesus said, when they see... When you see the abomination of desolation, in which case we're saying it's this Roman general who destroyed it in 70 AD. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, abomination of desolation. What does that sound like? Destroying, right? The destroyer. When you see him standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand that let those who are in Judea, not Jerusalem, Judea, let those who are in the nation run. <laughs> Take off. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Caitlin, it's not going to happen in the next couple of months, so you're cool. 
okay? We got a couple others that are just about ready, okay? All right. So you get the point, okay? What he's saying is he's saying flee, and they flee. Remember where they flee to? The earth protects them. Think about this for a second. The Roman army comes down to wipe out Israel, which is to say in symbolic language and what, what God's saying in Revelation here, Satan is coming down to kill all the Jews in the world. But what happens? They scatter to the ends of the earth. The Roman army can't get to them. So it's quite literally, Satan tries to flood, but the earth helps. See it? They've scattered to the earth, and the Roman army can't get to them because they're all over the globe now as they scatter from Israel. So it's a very literal, I mean, isn't it obvious how true this one is? Clearly going to other nations, all right? And in fact, just, this is that flood one in Psalms. This is just one example of it where it talks about a, an army coming to destroy you as a flood. What if the Lord had not been on our side when the people attacked us, when the enemy? They would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger. The waters would have engulfed us. A torrent would have overwhelmed us. Yes, the raging waters of their fury would have overwhelmed our very lives. A flood. But couldn't get to it because the earth swallowed them up. Because they got spread out. So, Satan goes after the Christ followers, which is who? Christians. And now Christians start getting martyred and persecuted, right? Starting with James, and then going through all of the, all the uh, disciples except for John, and, you know, thousands, and then pretty soon it's hundreds of thousands, and eventually it's millions, and so on. As we looked at it, it's still going on. He's still trying, pursuing the Christians, okay? And, by the way, the Jews, too, think Hitler, okay? But bottom line, we just did this. We just did... Clearly, Israel in John's day. This is who the woman is. And you see, well, you don't have to look at these other two. It's just so obvious that it fits this situation so perfectly. This is what it must be. Until somebody comes along and says, well, hey, check this out. Because what if the woman is the Gentile Christian church? You remember, it talks about a woman in glory. That's not Jewish language. That's Christian language. That's Gentile church language. This is that kind of, yeah, there may be a Jewish element to it and all that. We talked about that last week. But bottom line, you know, commentators will come along and they will say, that woman is the Christian Gentile church. Okay? All right, now if that's the truth, do, can we get these other markers to fit? Not, not force fit them. Is it obvious that this is what it's actually talking about? And so we go to Satan is cast down, but he's not fully cast down to the end. Do you remember, see, Jesus said, as the disciples went out, I saw Satan cast down as lightning. But let's just think that one through for a second. Isn't he still in heaven accusing us? Like it says in the passage? Isn't he still there? That comes after this casting down. So you see, he is in fact being cast down as we Christians go out and bring the kingdom. He's cast out of people's lives, and he's being cast down. But there's this principle in Christianity that's always now, not yet. It's happening now, but at the end, when there's this war between Michael and the archangels, and, or not between them, but the archangels and, and the angels fight, and Satan is now cast out. See? That's the final thing, and that's what's really being referred to, say, these commentators who work on a second set of chairs. And they say, what they do is, see right, right here, it's Revelation 6. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. 
This is the cosmic disturbance. It's not just the earth, but it's the sun, dark as a cloth, the moon, red as blood. It's this cosmic disturbance. It's this war in heaven that's being communicated, say these commentators, and I think accurately so. Then the stars of the sky fell to earth. What's it referring to? Satan being cast out. See? Okay? Now, it could be literally falling, you know, as, as in going black and dark and so on, but bottom line, there we go. And so we get to the next thing, and what we do is, is we say, he pursues the woman, which means he persecutes Christians. Remember, in this fifth seal, martyrdom's happening like crazy. In the sixth seal, martyrdom is still happening. It's just that Satan's been cast out, and he knows he's got a short time. So the martyrdom kicks into overdrive. Which is why, that's chapter 6, which is why in chapter 7, God then raptures his church out. Which is exactly what it says when the woman flies to the wilderness. Literally flies. Caught up to heaven. Caught up in the air to be with Christ. I mean, come on now. I mean, these guys, they had an argument to be made, but come on, this is a much better argument. See it? I mean, come on, he says flies. What the heck is it? What's, what's fly mean? Rapture sounds like a pretty good definition of what fly means. Go up, caught up to meet him in the air. See how obvious it is that this is actually the way you should be interpreting this? Satan tries to flood, but the earth helps. This is a little more complicated, but it's not actually. Just remember something in science right now. They say there's nobody believes anymore in just four dimensions, height, width, depth, and time. All the physicists are talking about, they all say there's other dimensions. It's clear. We've discovered that they really are there. We don't know how to get to them because we can't get to the other dimensions. But Christians have been saying that all along, right? It didn't take a scientist to tell us that there was a spiritual dimension to life, right? Now, do you understand, remember something, is there just one spiritual dimension to life? Because what's Paul talking about when he says he goes to the third heaven? Is it possible there's more than, the scientists say there's ten? So the four we've got, the three that the Bible talks about, we're up to seven, three more still. Maybe, who knows? But you catch the drift. The idea is we, we have a capacity to understand what's being said here. And what we understand is, is when Satan is cast down, he's cast out of that place of accusation, that highest heaven, the place that is the throne room of God. He's cast out of that. And dimensionally, where he was able to move in all the dimensions, height, width, depth, time, and all the spiritual dimensions, he's now limited which is to say the earth has protected him, the laws of the universe, the dimensions that God has created. He's now been cast out of a dimension, and he can no longer get back, and the earth, the universe, has helped. Okay? That may be a little bit of a stretch, but I can go other ways with it, but I'm just giving you a flow here. And then Satan goes after Christ's followers. He's not able to get anymore to Christians who are raptured. Now he goes after who's left that's following Christ's command. Who's left? The 144,000, and we saw when the two witnesses did it that Jews came to a believing knowledge of Christ in faith because they saw what happened with the two witnesses and realized this was the pattern for Jesus Christ. And so now they come en masse. So what we've got is, is Satan's going after the 144,000 and or the new saved Jews, take it how you want to take it. But bottom line, isn't it obvious to you that that's actually what's true? That's the proper interpretation. This one right here, nah, nah, but this one, this is good. Until somebody comes along and does this. Well, what if it's the Jewish believers, and in particular what it's talking about 
at the end. I mean, after all, when the Christians get raptured out in chapter 7, the book narrative all goes to Israelite stuff. It's about the temple and worshipers and Jewish things. See? So really that woman, it's, it's, the, it's the believing church. It's not the nation of Israel like we saw in John's time. It's the believing church, the Messianic Jews, is the way that we would refer to them right now. See what I mean? And so what we've got is, is that's who the woman is. And I, I know, just hang in there with me for a second, okay? I can see some people starting to go, uh-oh, the glaze is coming, okay? But hang, I'm almost done with this, and then we're going to get to some fun stuff. So don't, if you're going to go to sleep, probably the next couple minutes and then come back, okay? Satan cast down. They would say the same thing that that other interpretation said. He's not cast down fully until the end. That's when he's actually, so they're borrowing one. They're sharing this one. These last two interpretations are sharing this moment with each other, which is fine, right? You can borrow, you can share. Okay, it's fun to share, right? Pursue the woman. Who's the woman? The new Jewish believers. Isn't that obvious? Right? Satan's been cast down. The Christians have been raptured out. But all these people came to Christ. Who's he pursuing now? These Jewish believers that have gotten saved because of the two witnesses have come to a recognition he's pursuing them. Now, they're protected for the, the 1260 literal days, right? But then other stuff happens. She flies to the wilderness. This is, um, a lot of commentators will say this is actually what's going to happen, and I, I struggle with this, but I'm just going to tell it to you because I want you to see how commentators will handle this. But they'll say flies to the wilderness. Hey, where's the wilderness? It's a place of protection. We have an earthly metaphor for a place of protection in the wilderness that's really powerful. It's called Petra. See, here's the nation of Israel up here. You can see it. It's, it's, all right, it's up in here. And down here is Petra. And you've seen it in movies and so on because it's that really cool place with those deep crevasses and, and they carve these beautiful buildings. Everybody always thinks there's like one or two buildings in there. Do you know it's an entire region? And there's all of these riverbeds, old, washed-out kind of places that are carved deeply. In fact, look at this. Look at how deep these caverns are. See? And they go for miles. They just go all over the place. Like in Afghanistan right now, how we can't capture the Taliban. And, and they're just hiding in the mountains. And we think, what's the big deal? Just bomb the whole mountain. But it turns out it's a big area, and there are big mountains, and, and there's a lot of places to hide in them, and so on. And so people will say they're fleeing to Petra, and I would say, I don't know, it seems like if the whole world's going after them, they could probably find them in the caves eventually, right? But, you know, it protected for a season. It's only for a time, so maybe that's true. But something like this where they fly into a protected place. And then it could be a literal flood. If it's talking about Petra, that part of the desert, interestingly, Rivers can be flowing. Full-fledged rivers will be flowing, and then they'll just disappear into the sand. And then they'll come back up again miles later. And literally, that'll happen. So there's this imagery that is in people's minds that they understand what this is saying, and maybe it's literal. We don't know about this part, right, because it has yet to happen. But maybe it's, maybe it's just symbolic of, of doing this, but you catch the drift, and you're going, look, look at how well this fits these Jewish believers, and Satan goes after Christ's followers, the 144,000 and or the new Jewish believers. See it? So all of a sudden I say, you know what? This one was good. This one was good. But I don't know, you know, I mean, if I look at the flow of the book and everything else, I'm going to go with this one. I could do that. Can I just take a quick poll? Here. Here's the three ways. Let's just, just by, a, by I don't know, I, I'll do the meter thing, okay? This is how we'll do it. 
Okay, I'll do the, you know, the, okay. So how many people, you can vote for more than one. Okay, so just, just cheer for, clap and cheer and make noise for. How many people believe that what this is mostly talking about is that Jewish nation in John's day? That's the primary thing he's talking about or, or something like that, or at least, at least one of the ones that's possible. Let's do it that way and then we'll get more cheers. No, you got to make noise. You okay? Really? That's all we get for that one? Okay, well, that's not very high. All right. So Gentile Christian church, how many believe that's what this is really talking about? Okay. Oh, that's a little higher. Okay. All right. All right. Now, Jewish believers, especially at the end times, how many people believe it's that one? Okay. That was pretty close to Gentile believers. How many people believe that this is actually talking about all three of these at one time? Oh, see ya? Okay. Nicely done, by the way. Okay. You get it? Now, now here's what. Watch this. God is communicating all three of these truths, and there's not just these three. There's other ones I could have done with you. What I want you to see about our God is, He is able to communicate a whole bunch of different truths at one time, a whole bunch of different layers of the truth. Multiple layers of one whole truth. To think that it's just this or just this or just this is to miss God. See? It's not just this. It's all of this. This is how he does it. He's been doing it for a long time. How do we miss that? Because we always make God smaller than he actually is. Now think about this for a second. What we've just done is we've shown in three time periods. Time of John, church age, at the end. We've just done three ages and showed how this works, and that was time, sort of, time was the issue. But I want you to think about something. When God communicates like to you, he communicates on more than one level all the time. There's a truth about your circumstances, but what it really means is this. And what it's really going to is this. And what it really leads is this. And what it really means is this. And the revelation about me is this. Do you see it? Think about it. The reason why you and I can understand poetry, the multiple levels of language, is because we're made in the image of God, who's infinite and always multi-layered, multi-dimensional. The reason why you and I can understand poetry and say our really smart cat cannot the reason why you and I can understand poetry is because we're made in the image of God. The reason why our really smart cat cannot understand poetry is because they are made in the image of Satan. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It was a joke. <laughs> I meant it to be a joke, and I knew it would take a second because I've been being really serious. And I want to say, I can make a cat joke because I love cats. Okay, I love their independence. Okay, that's a cool thing about cats to me. The fact that cats don't really need you, right? You know, dogs have owners and cats have, well, how's it go? Cats have staff. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay. So I love cats. So, all right. But, but you get what I'm saying. In fact, let's do this. Okay. Now, this is a cake. And I mean, this is a cake. And this comes from Jessica Van Dyke, who is 
this is incredibly talented, gifted young woman who's come on the staff. She's just absolutely amazing, and she's doing so many things. I can tell you what she was not hired for, but and all the things that we enjoy with her, right at the very top is this. It turns out she loves to bake. And she doesn't just love to bake. She loves to go find, like, some recipe that is ridiculous how good it is. There was a cake, a chocolate cake thing, that there was a homemade caramel that was dripping off of this chocolate. The chocolate cake alone would have put you into diabetic shock forever. But the caramel dripping off of it made it worth it. It was just so stinking good. And then she made another apple thing with this sauce in it and everything else. I do want to show you something. So she brings these to the staff all the time. And I want to show you, I want to prove to you right now for certain that life is unfair. I want to watch. She loves to bake and she does it all the time. I want to show you her husband and what he looks like. Now compare that physique and tell me, you know she's cooking this stuff, and you know he's eating it, and he looks like that, and I look crossways at a croissant, and I've gained time two pounds. So life is unfair. I want to make that clear. Now, I asked her to do something here, and I want you to see something. When we look at this cake, here's this cake, and this cake is the whole thing, right? I mean, you look at that, your mouth is watering. I won't salivate on it, so you can eat pieces later. But... Maybe I will celebrate so you can't, but, but, but this is this cake, and when you look at this cake, you know this cake, right? I mean, you can already taste it, you already know, and you know it's great, and everything else. But here's the interesting thing about this cake. See, when you dig into it, when you dig into God, when you go deeper with God, you find out something about Him as time goes on, and that is, I want to cut this wide enough, oh, you're wonderful, you're so awesome. Thank you. Help me do this. I never would have got this done without you, so you are awesome. Now look at that. Did you expect that? You did? <laughs> well, then you are truly prophetic. But can you all see it? Can you all see it? Okay. What I want you to see is, is the multi dimensions of it. It wasn't until you cut into it. It wasn't until you went after it. It wasn't until you, excuse me a moment. It wasn't until you went into it that you begin to see the multi-dimensions, the multiple levels at which the real God actually is. What are you doing now? I'm just going to facilitate you. I'm your Carol Merrill. You're, you're my Carol Merrill? Thank you. I like that. It's, Can everybody see it? It's hard, it's a little it won't stand up. There you go. All right, now, you can go ahead and sit up if you want because we're just about to talk, but don't look at her while she's up here, okay? <laughs> That's really hard to do when she's up here, trust me. But I'm actually going to do something. Remember how we started the sermon? I said that there's people that you're going to be encountering and there's relationships and there's, there's a way of dealing with these things that's different. I want you to think for a second about relationships. And I'm not just talking about Thanksgiving ones. I'm going to use as a relationship Julie and me. Okay? And I'm do this with fear and trepidation. Anybody who wants to start praying for me right now, please do. But I, I, want, you to, I want to communicate something, okay? When, when Julie first met me, 
okay, at 19 years old, I was 19, she was 18. When Julie first met me, uh, I had already at that point in time experienced an awful lot of things. I'd grown up wealthy and independent, very independent, and, and I had traveled all over the place. I had done all kinds of different business things. I had an exposure to life that was already quite broad at that point in time, and it's just the way that I live life. I lived life at 110 miles an hour, literally got picked up. The kids are gone at the youth team, so I can say this now. You can't say I said this to them, but I literally got picked up over five times going over 100 miles an hour. So I just lived life with pedal to the metal as fast as it would go. And that's how she met me. Now, now Julie liked that because as her mother said, she said, Julie, you've always liked your horses and your men just a little out of control. <laughs> okay. Now, when Julie first got together with me, it was all fun and games. I mean, look at the face and tell me you're not going to have a good time there. Okay. <laughs> Right? I've got an image up on the screen. Oh! <laughs> yeah. See, that's what it was like, okay? That looks like fun. But you see, there's a funny thing that happens in life, right? The thing that you're most attracted to in a relationship, not every time, but almost always, over time is the thing that will drive you crazy is the euphemistic way of saying it. The thing that you loved in the beginning is the thing that is a problem because the problem with us is living at 110 miles an hour, you're bound to run into something at some point in time. And at one point in time, I ran into a wall that cost us everything we had financially. And at another point in time, I did this. And at another point in time, I did that. And living my life pedal to the metal has hurt her in some very significant ways and not because of her decisions. In fact, see, when you're, when you're run, running 110 miles an hour, and she's just along for the ride, the decisions that are being made, these are my decisions, right? This, isn't, this wasn't a team effort. And I'm not saying I didn't try and make it a team effort, but it just, I could go into more detail, I won't. But the bottom line is, is this was what I was doing. And so when things went poorly, when I don't provide the security, the safety, when I don't provide the good life, the stable life, that Julie was hoping that I would provide, there comes a point in time at which she's hurt and she has every right to be offended at me and, and is and was and has been, okay? And that's in all tenses. But here's what I want you to understand. See, she can live life right there in that layer alone, the hurt that I've done to her. She can live life there. And if she does, how's our relationship going to go? Not really much hope for us, is there, Right? It just isn't going to go well, right? Because, I mean, she's always going to be hurt. I'm never going to be able to do anything. We're never going to get past it. It's just she's going to hold on to her hurt. How many people are in a relationship right now to where at least one party, either you or the other person, is holding on to a hurt? And you will not go further because until that person repents, until that person does something different, until that person totally changes, until that person, whatever, whatever, you've got all this criteria about what's got to happen before you would ever even think about forgiving that person for that thing. Now, where's that relationship going to go? It's going to be stuck in the mud, stuck in a very bad place. So Julie has to find another layer, and the other layer that she finds is, is that when she watches me live my life, she sees that when I hurt her and when I hurt other people, and, and, and anybody who knows me knows, you know, I am capable of living, you know, still bull in a china closet and still having, getting my own way, and I'm trying very hard not to. 
but I'm still capable of doing that. And what I want to say is, is she can start to understand that I really am trying. It's not natural to me. What's natural to me is to do things my way. But knowing that that doesn't always lead a good place, I can do all kinds of things to try and set it up to where other people are checking me and are helping me to get to a better place than I would have ever got to myself. Do you see it? Relationships, right? Now do note something. See, she can have an awful lot of charity for me about the fact that I am trying to improve myself, that I am trying to get better at this, that I'm trying not to just be that bull in a china closet. I'm trying to, you know, get it better. She can have a lot of compassion that I'm trying to do that. It doesn't mean that I'm still not making mistakes, and it doesn't mean that she has to forget about them because I'm trying. Right? How many people have tried to forgive somebody, and they're trying, but they keep making the same stinking mistake? Maybe they make it less often, but they still make it. And, you know, who wants to be around that? You know, fool me once, my fault. Fool me twice, no, fool me once, your fault. Fool me twice, my fault. Right? You know, I keep coming back to the same well and getting the same slap in the face. Hey, that was about as mixed a metaphor as you could find. <laughs> you get it? But so she can live there. And if she lives there where she's got, where she understands that I'm trying, but she's still getting hurt. Now, that'll blunt some of it. It doesn't mean I don't need to work on it. And she understands I need to work on it. I understand. But just, just getting more dimensions, more levels to the conversation helps, doesn't it? It helps her stay with me at least right? But really, where's the relationship going to go? I'm going to say something right now that, um, you know, I just feel like I'm supposed to, so I'm going to do it. You need to understand the depths to which this actually goes. This isn't just a casual moment for Julie and I. Uh, I've pastored here for 13 years, and there's probably a thousand people that have come to this church at one time or another. And that means, since there's not a thousand here, that there's a lot of people that came and got to be part of our community and got to be great friends and then aren't here anymore. Now, the reason why they're not here, let me make it clear, is not fully me, but it's a good 99.9%. Things I did. I didn't run the church well. I didn't set things up well. I was a bull in the china closet. Things that I did. And, and I have great relationships with all those people. I love them, and they love me, and we still fellowship, and we still talk, and so on. But, you know... Now, here's what you got to understand. See, when somebody leaves the church, and it's my fault, and I know that I did something, you know, no matter what else might be in play, one thing the staff always does, one thing I always do, I never go to why someone else was wrong about something. I always go to why God let it happen and what he's trying to teach me so that I can get it right. Because I want to learn from painful things. Because then I might not have to experience them again, and either way, I just like learning. Because it's better for everybody. And so the bottom line is, is when they leave and it's my fault, see, that hurts me because I'm a very strong people person. But you can take my people person skills and multiply them by what? You know, square them and then square it again and then square it again, and that's about where you get to with Julie. People mean everything to Julie. I have this little saying about Julie, the things that we own in our life. We own, we live in a condo, so we don't have a lot of room. When we have garages, she just got down to one garage, but we have garages filled with stuff. Now, here's what I want to make clear about her stuff. Julie does not hoard things. She'll give something away that's worth money in a heartbeat. I mean, lots of money. Like, I'm going, don't give that away. <laughs> God. But I'm telling you, if you gave Julie a paperclip 15 years ago that had a story with it, there was a reason why you gave it a paperclip. It was attached to a letter that meant something to her, I have to buy a storage room. 
because I have to keep that. What matters to her is people, the connection with people, incredibly strong. Now, how do you think it feels when people that Julie, her favorite saying is, that's somebody I want to grow old with. How do you think it feels to her when they leave the church? And she knows that it was at least in part my fault. It's hard on me. But when she looks at me, let's be serious now. If she doesn't have a crisis of respect, then she's just stupid and she's not stupid. I mean, she looks at me and she wonders what's wrong with my husband that this happens. What's going on here? She has to look at me that way, doesn't she? How many of you have done love and respect as a married seminar thing? How many people in this room? It's actually good. We're going to do it again with that many hands only showing. Love and respect is this unbelievable insight into men and women. And what it says is women love naturally and men respect naturally. So what the Bible tells us to do is that women who love naturally need to respect their husbands. And men who respect naturally need to love their wives. And what's being said is, is that, see, when Julie starts falling out of respect for me, I'm already feeling pretty insecure. And when my best friend, when my partner, when the one that I'm one flesh with starts having a respect problem with me, how do you think I feel? And if I'm going to be defensive at all, and by the way, anytime anybody's coming after you in any way, shape, or form, you feel defensive. And if I'm feeling defensive at all, then what's going to happen is my love for her. I'll respect her because she's right. She's righter than me all the time. I respect her incredibly. But if she's not respecting me, it's not hard for my love to start to wane because I'm not getting something that I need that God intended me to have. And because of my own fault, so I can't blame her. But now we're in this spiral that love and respect describes, right? And as I begin to not love her, then she doesn't feel covered by me even more. Because when a woman doesn't feel love, she feels like she's not, she feels like she's being exposed. And now she really needs to worry about if she can respect. And so then the love goes down, and the respect goes down, the love goes down, and the whole thing. Now, the other way that this is supposed to work is, see, is that if Julie, despite the idiot things that I do and the tough things that I do, if Julie respects me, not just loves me, because I know she loves me, but if she'll respect me, even in the tough times, then I go, I can learn more. I can take this on. I can get something more out of this, and I can work at it. I can get better at it. I can do better. I can still go because I got, my back is covered. I got this support system. I got this person that I respect, respecting me. And by the way, when she does that, despite the things that I do, man, do I love her. And when I love her, she feels covered, and despite the mistakes I'm making, she keeps respecting me, and now all of a sudden it's going like this. See, it's working its way up. And we're getting out of a hole. See it? So here's what Julie's got faced with. See, she can, she can live right here. She can live in the place where she knows the strength, my strength has become my weakness. And it's hurt her. But it's balanced by the fact that I'm trying. But that's not going to get us home, is it? There's another layer that we've got to get to. There's another layer that she has to get to. Wait a minute. I'm the one that made the mistakes. Yeah, but she's going to have to do something to get through it. I talk all the time about going to the Lord and asking him, Lord, what do you see in this person? 
Because I don't see it anymore. What do you see in this person? Can I get the microphone? Can you guys turn it on? Thank you. So, honey. <laughs> honey, lovey-dovey. <laughs> Where do you go? How do you get past the things that I've done to hurt you? Well, the same thing that I loved about that, I pull myself back to know that he's a pursuer of, he was a pursuer of me, and he's, you're a pursuer of God, and that you will hear from the Lord, and that you will go after, and learn from and understand the things that um, you're doing right and wrong. And you're passionate, and I know that you're going to passionately pursue what God has for you. And I know that you're for my good. I do know that you're ultimately for my good. And so I, I pull that back and pray and end up 30... You can talk longer now. 36 years later. <laughs> no, I, I want you to see something, see? If she doesn't get to that level, watch what this level is. Despite the hurt, the offense... She can't take up the offense. She has to find God. If she looks to me, it'll always be bad. If she looks to God, God will do with her the same thing that he does with all of us. When God looks at us, is this the level that he sees us? All the mistakes we make? That's the way a lot of people that aren't Christians think that God looks at and think Christians look at themselves. And a lot of Christians, unfortunately, do think God looks at them like this right? All the mistakes you make, wrap the knuckles, you're bad. You got to get better. Okay, you're trying to get better. We can go to level two. You're trying to get better, but still, you're still a mess up. And this is still not a healthy relationship with God in your own understanding, is it? And it is not, clearly not, the relationship that God has with us. Because what God sees is something underneath all the mistakes. He sees a layer that he created that is magnificent, that has purpose, that is important in the world. And what God does with us is he comes to us and he calls out of us his purpose, his greatness, what he made us to be. Because God is always on every dimension. It doesn't mean he's throwing away the things that we do wrong. It doesn't mean we're not still working up here. It doesn't, because he gets to a lower level, doesn't mean that this isn't still in play. All the levels are in play. How to get victorious over sin. How to get to places where we really do get victory in the things that we're working on. But ultimately, and most importantly, and the thing that I'm going after, when you're back with people that are difficult this Thanksgiving, and any relationship that you have, when you're in a tough place, you have got to become in the image of God who is not your accuser. He is the person who is prophetically calling out of you the thing that he has made you to be. And that thing brings you victory because I'm not in a spiral down anymore. I'm being lifted up and all of this stuff just seems unimportant to me. 
We are made in that image, and when we find somebody that we're having difficulty with, we have to go to God, and we have to not just find out what he loves about them, because, boy, that's an important, powerful truth. Somebody sent me a testimony on it. You'll see it in the weekly update about that very fact. But we have to do something else. We have to be God's hands and feet in the world. We have to become his mouth, his heart, to that person who is tough really tough and we have to find the thing that we can call out of them that makes them great not the greatness that was perverted into destruction but the greatness that God has that has been redeemed and resurrected and that is making a real difference in the world that is what we have to be when we go back at Thanksgiving now I just want to say do be aware, as far as is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Move in that ministry. Try and be a reconciler. Understand, it may not always work. Don't be disappointed if it doesn't. It's just, you just have to do what you're called to do. And what you're called to do is to be Christ in their life to be the instrument of Christ to discovering what is wonderful about them and then calling it out of them even while they're doing the destruction that they're so want to do. That is the thing that has the chance of changing a life. And anything else does, holding them to account, helping them to get better at what they're supposed to be doing right, doesn't work. What works is to become a prophetic instrument of the Most High God who made that person too and has purpose and meaning and value and importance in the world. And boy, you get that out of them and that changes everything. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before your throne right now, God, in thanksgiving and praise for the God that you are, which is multidimensional, multiple levels. You are the wholeness of truth in multiple levels. And now, God, we're asking you that as we go and we deal with people, not just in Thanksgiving, but in the whole of our lives, we're asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name that you would turn us into instruments of multiple levels to get to the whole truth. In Jesus' holy and precious name. God, we reach before us.